everyone, welcome to the podcast today. I'm your host, Tyler Kern, and I'm excited to be sitting across the table from a man who has done just about everything that I can think of in the world of audio. His name's Collier Spreen. He's a pro audio consultant and uh, sales rep at Cutting Edge, but more than importantly, you've done just kind of a little bit of everything. And I was trying to go through your... Uh, your resume before we sat down, and I realized I, there's no way I could succinctly actually say everything that you've done in your career. So give us an idea, if you could, <laughs> of all the things that you've done in the world of audio. It's a big world, um, yeah, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of hit the high spots. Yeah. Um, I started out as a musician, and the whole dream of becoming a studio musician said, oh, I've got to either move to New York or L.A., mm-hmm. so I did both. Um and I went up working in studios, finding out that I really, I love to play, I still play, but I really wanted to be a recording engineer, a mix engineer. So I went down that path, uh, did that for quite a few years in Los Angeles. Um, then the music business changed, then I became a recording mix engineer for post-production, television, commercials, radio, things like that. Um, and then uh, 15 years later, um, the that business changed. Then I went to work for a company called Avid that makes the software and hardware that most professionals use in the world and became an expert. Not that I wasn't sort of already very well versed from running my own studio or studios really using all that stuff. But I went to work for Avid uh, for almost eight years and became an expert on all of that, the pro level stuff, whether it was music or post-production, film, TV, you name it. Um, So... That experience has sort of educated me all along the way, and and my passion for audio, everything audio, whether it's stereo music or Atmos television and film or Atmos music or everything in between surround, uh, has always driven me to learn and just find out more and more about everything. So I've just learned as much as I could about it. Um, and it's still just, you know, gets me out of bed every day and keeps you, keeps me up late at night. I still mix at home. I have a little mix room at home. Um, uh, the company I work for based out of San Francisco, I advise some very well-known names in the industry sure. that do films and music and everything in between. And so I've been very, very lucky, um, because of my passion, because of my ability to learn and sort of adapt and grow, uh, I was born a long time ago, so I've seen a lot of things. I, I started with tape and consoles. I started editing tape. There were little cuts on my jeans. Sure. For when, when you cut the two inch and, it, and your hand moves down, you got these little nicks in your jeans. And uh, when we were in New York, we called those razor blades wrist kits. We never never used them in that <laughs> manner. But uh, anyway, so I started with analog, and I, I lived through the transition and and stayed ahead of everything. So it's been an interesting career. It's always been around audio. It's whether I'm creating it, a performer in it, a mixer, or an advisor, or, or actually a salesperson say, no, you should, here's what you should really buy. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, or let me help you configure this console the way you want it. So you kind of brought up just that idea that you've had to be adaptable, that you've had to learn as you go, because just about everything that that you worked with when you first started is different now. Everything, you know, it switched over to digital in a lot of ways. You mentioned the tape that you worked with initially. How important has that adaptability been throughout your career just to take what you've done before and not say, I'm going to be stubborn and stick with this way of doing things, but I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow. I'm going to move with the times. Well, that's, that's the only way to survive. I mean, adapt or die, so to speak. 
And the basics that you learn, I don't care if it's video or audio or computers or, or whatever it is, if it's a basic, uh, if, if there are certain te techniques or technology um, with analog signal flow, mm -hmm. that is still the same. It just happens to ha occur inside of a computer or inside of many computers or, or between computers even. Um, keeping up with the times or even staying ahead of it is the only way to sort of stay into it. There were many points where it's like, ah, I really don't care to learn about this, or I don't believe this way. Then there are still a lot of guys in LA, a few in LA, a lot in Nashville that, that they cling to the analog workflow and there's nothing wrong with it, but they've had to adapt and, and bring computers in. They use computers as smart tape machines rather than doing it all in the box as we, as we say. But most people have moved to completely in the box with maybe some loops out to analog boxes for that for that taste or that squish. Yeah, yeah, that people still like, I suppose. There's that texture there, I suppose, that, that people enjoy. There, There is. I mean, there's a, there's a validity to the analog signal path. Mm -hmm. And you can recreate it. You can sort of almost perfectly recreate it in the digital domain. But some things are still nothing better than a real room reverb. No sure. machine can fake it. And uh, things like that. But and, and there's nothing better than a classic microphone through a tube signal path mm -hmm. through, you know, brand A or N or T or S console into your computer. So it, it's all very valid. And the, the, the thing that helped me is that I started there and I've taken all that with me. That's my baggage. Yeah. You know, or I, I, baggage is bad. That's my luggage. Luggage has is, is got a positive as, aspect to it. <laughs> baggage, it's, you know, things you don't want to know about. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I get what you're saying. Well, let's go back to that beginning then because I'm curious about how you first got started. You, you knew that you wanted to kind of be an artist and you wanted to play, and so you got in and you were working at studios. Tell me about those early experiences and, and some of the, the stories, you know, the, the things that you experienced, the people that you saw, and what you did to just first get your start. Oh man, I was probably 12 years old and my mom was an actress uh, and she hung out with actors, which is always a, a crazy fun bunch. And she'd always <laughs> brag about her kids and I was the drummer. Oh, he's a great drummer and he knows how to play, read music, which was rare for drummers. Um, and so they're like, well, can he, if he can read music, we should come have him play. And that, so I put- That's the joke, right? Like, how do you get your, your drummer to stop playing? Hand him some sheet, sheet music? Hand him some sheet like music that, and yeah. go, oh, I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> But I wound up playing jingle sessions and, and record on recordings when I was a kid that I really sure. didn't know what I was doing other than just, hey, I'm playing to the song, music moves me, so I played to the song. Mm -hmm. And that that sort of really elevated my, my it's like, oh, man, I really love playing and I can make money at it. I can support myself. So I played, literally played drums through college to support myself as well as other things. Right. Uh, but I've been playing drums forever. Um, and it's, it's always come easy to me and I had to work, I worked at it to become better. Uh, there was some natural talent there that I had to work on. But when I realized it's like, uh, I don't want to, uh, my degrees in economics. So that makes sense. Right. Um, <laughs> but I realized I really want to be in the music business. I, I love music. I'd buy an album, put on headphones and not take them off until the second side had played. Right. Of course there is no second side and people are like, what? But, um, so I thought, okay. How do I make make a living that way? Well, I can be a session musician. Well, it's very competitive, both in the West and East Coast and, and Nashville as well. So I thought, well, you know, the guy with the real control is the guy on the other side of the glass telling people what to do, pushing buttons, pushing play in the tape machine. Sure. So I thought I'd go to school, become a recording engineer, 
And of course, you get there and you learn other things and you meet people and you listen to them and they say, look, just go out and get a job. You're going to start as a, as an, in, uh, well, back then it was called an apprentice. It's the same as an intern, made $5 a day, living in New York City. So I had to work at night to pay my rent. Wow. Back then, Brooklyn Heights, I could get an apartment for three fifty a month, but you know, that's in 1754 or whenever that was. So, <laughs> but, but I was able to work and live and, and do that. And I worked on a tremendous amount of records, uh, not knowing anything, but I learned every day and every, every time I worked in a session or, or was, was allowed in the room. I mean, I was the guy that made the coffee and took the trash out, uh, and vacuumed the place. And when everything else was done and I went and got the lunch, it's like, okay, He's cool. He can sit in the back of the room and I'd take notes. And at the end of the day, it's like I'd ask the engineer a bunch of stupid questions. And every once in a while, he'd say, okay, go set up a mic. Show me, get, get the signal up on the console. If I could do it, he's like, okay, you can stay in the room. Right. So it's trial by fire. I mean, it's like every time you couldn't do something, it's like, uh, I don't know about you. Yeah. So you, you sink or swim really quickly in that business. You know, it, it's true with anything in production. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you've got to be your own self-starter. Um, and really put, put the effort out. It's not about how cool you are, how smart you are, or how many people you know. Although it's not about how, how many people you know, but a- another interesting thing, when I moved to LA after New York, I was still playing drums. I played in a band. We got signed to Chrysalis. It was a great thing. And like half the other band stories in LA, Chrysalis got absorbed by EMI Sony and our record got shelved, never came out. And of course. Got the demo somewhere on MP3s. But yeah. Um, I auditioned for a ton of bands, mm-hmm. a ton of gigs before this band thing happened. And I would get pretty far. Um, and it was always like, oh, we already know this guy. We, you know, we didn't know he was free. We'd take him. But I, I got some good gob- jobs out of it. But there were always people that are t- 10 times better than me technically. They were just amazed. It's like, oh, dude, this guy's so good. Why am I even here? And he would get eliminated first, or that person would get eliminated way before me. Right. Uh, and I realized it, it wasn't necessarily your technical chops or even your musical chops, but it's like hang factor. Is he cool to sit and hang around with? Is he a normal human being? Or does he live, eat, and breathe his instrument, which can be annoying after a while. You want to be able to go, you know, there was a studio in LA. Once I got into the LA studios, I would go across the street to, uh, I'm not going to drop names, but uh, his buddy Brundo's place, I walked over there and a guy I still know today that works for Avid, he and I and Prince and Slash were playing basketball outside the studio. They're like, hey, man, you want to play ball? It's like, sure. So I'm playing with these, <laughs> these other three guys, two of them everybody would know. And it's like, if you have hang factor, if, if, you're, if you've got a cool vibe, you're in. And if you're stressed or nervous or, or starstruck or something, it's like, ooh. You yeah. Know, so it's it's very much about your personality and your your aura and what you know. If you're a great guy but you don't know anything, you know you're only going to get so far. So I happen to have you know kind of a good combination of those things. And the the only other thing that I would this is sort of a my little flag up the pole is whenever you get an opportunity, if somebody says, "Hey man, do you want to try this?" or "Hey, would you would you consider doing this?" always say yes. Because right. you can go in and fail miserably and go, ha, okay, that's not for me. But you never know. You know, opportunities come every day. A door opens every day for you. Uh, when I met this gentleman over here, then I was like, I don't want to go do that. And I was like, you know what? Wait, I got nothing else to lose. And fantastic things happen because I took that chance, that sure. opportunity. So I, I think 
that would be my only advice to anybody from five to 50 would be like, man, if a door opens an opportunity, take it. That was the thing. So I worked in, in radio before I worked here and I was there for six years or so. And there were people that would start off, you know, minimum wage in radio, just wanting to be on the radio one day or whatever. And they would ask, okay, like, what did you do to kind of get to where you are, where you have a full-time job in radio? And I wasn't famous. I wasn't popular. I wasn't even a cool person necessarily. But the question was just, how do you get to have a full-time job in radio? And my answer always has been, anytime they needed anybody to do anything, you know, if they needed somebody to be up at the studio at 3 a.m. to go pick up notes and take it to a host somewhere out on some remote uh, remote broadcast, I would do it. And, and that's really just the way to make it in these creative spaces is just to be available. And like you said, to be somebody that people don't hate to be around. That's, that's right. It's, it, you know, take every opportunity and volunteer for whatever. Yeah. Because everything leads to, you know, one thing leads to another. It's cliche, but it's 100% correct. It could lead to a dead end for you personally and go, oh, I really don't like what I'm doing. And a lot of people find that out too. Mm -hmm. But I would literally say if somebody's like, "Hey, man, who wants to ha who wants to work this weekend on a project? It doesn't pay anything, but you get to work with Mr. X." It's like, "I'm in." Yeah, and I'm like, "Okay, you." So you never know what happens. And I had, I wound up touring with a big band in the '80s called the Starship mm -hmm. because some guy that was there, this guy Gabe, was their hired gun keyboard player. They didn't have a keyboard player in the band back then. This is Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship, Starship. Back in 80, 85, they had a keyboard player that from L.A., and this guy called me up and said, hey, I heard that you're a MIDI guy for for L.A. keyboard players, three or four keyboard players and test studio guys. So I would design and help and set up their MIDI and stuff. Sort of technical. When MIDI first came out, literally it was fresh on the scene. And so I was like, sure, man. So I came over, and he paid me a nice rate to help him set up his home studio and we had a good hang time, and his studio was great. He's a great player. He lives in Nashville. Great, great guy. Um, and he's like, hey, man, would you consider going on tour? It's like, uh, I like the white glove gig. I want to stay in the studio. I don't want to get sweaty and dirty and <laughs> ride on a bus. Yeah, three months later, I'm riding on a bus sure, and touring sure. America and Europe and everywhere because I said, yeah, okay. They flew me out to uh, Lake Tahoe, and I got to have lunch with Grace Slick, and it was like, oh, this is kind of cool. So it was, again, it was like, mm, okay, I'll look into it. So if, you know, like, like you said, when people say, how did you get there? And it's like, I don't even know. My path has been so circuitous and right. sinusoidal. It's like, there's no straight line to anything except stopping. So um, it, it's been an amazing uh, life. I've had two or three lifetimes and, and I, th I, th I consider myself very, very lucky but also sort of a little bit intelligent in that I never, I rarely would say, nah, I don't do that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, because all you have to do is go in, step into that room that you're not familiar with and go, oh, no, this is not for me. Because there have been those. Sure. There's been those opportunities. It's like, ah, this is not my cup of tea. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I've been lucky in that a lot of things that I said yes to panned out. What's the maybe the one time where you were in a room and you were you know, talking to someone, played with someone, interacted with someone that you still look back and you kind of have that, that pinch yourself moment of, oh, I played basketball with Prince or, you know, <laughs> uh, I, you know, sat there at the drums while this person was, was in the room or something like that. Are, are there any of those moments uh, uh, that you look back on? And you're still like, I can't believe that was actually me. That my, got to do that. my hero, my, I don't have many heroes, but there's this drummer, Jeff Picaro passed away early nineties um, 
I'm sorry, l- late 90s rather, mm-hmm. but he uh, he was inspirational. He he played with Sonny and Cher when he was 16, toured with them, played all early Steely Dan records. He was the original drummer and brother of the guys in Toto. Wow. When Toto wasn't cool, I was in totally into it. It's like, <laughs> and, that's just, and people are like, what is this crap? They're studio musicians. Eh. Anyway, this guy was my hero. So when I moved to LA, the studio, the first studio I got to work in was a big tracking. There's a mixed room in the back and a tracking room in the front. Mm-hmm. It used to be Bing Crosby. He built it in the 40s. Wow. Um, it's right next to, te- uh, to Paramount. And so he could go over on his lunch hour and record, make records. I stood in the spot where he sang White Christmas. So there's there's some cool vibe in that building. Also, his ghost was there, which is a, a story for another time. <laughs> but we're doing a, a, a session for Joe Cocker. And uh, J-Mo's come in the night before and set up Jeff's drums. Drum doctor's been in, tuned everything in the morning. So I'm way early. I'm the assistant. So I'm setting up all the mics. Mm-hmm. So I've placed all the mics pretty much uh, for the piano and the drums and the amp run out lines for the bass and stuff. So it's, I'm a drummer. His stick bag is there. The sticks are in the stick bag. It's like, oh, this is the drum kit he did Rosanna on. Okay, <laughs> I got to sit on this. I got to play. So I sit down and start playing. It's like, okay, I'm playing this groove on Jeff's kit in a studio. And it's like, ah, and so maybe two minutes passes by and I realize, and I'm sort of in my own little cool world, Mm -hmm. in my own fantasy world. And I look over and there's a cigarette burning in this little alcove where you come in, when you come in the studio, you go through a a door and there's an airlock and another door. And inside the studio, inside the airlock door, there's a cigarette burning. It's like, oh shit. And so I stop playing and and instead of go, hey man, How's it going? And Jeff steps out <laughs> from the from the shadows. And he's like, "Man, don't stop playing for me. It sounds good." I'm like, "Validation, yeah, right there." And, I, and but I was so tripping, yeah. freaked out. It's like, dude, don't play my drums, don't, you know, because the brand new heads. Oh and, yeah, yeah. And I was so freaked out, but he was so cool and so laid back. He's like, "Man, that sounds great, man. I'm just just waiting for the rest of the guys." The producer hadn't showed up and and such, but that and. uh there was another incident, a real quick one, out at Westlake Studios um, during the making of Bad, mm-hmm. the record Bad. Same thing. I was working for a keyboard player. The the cartridge guys would bring all the stuff and set it up yeah. or just open the cases. Uh, so no heavy lifting for me. But I would set it up and plug in everything properly. This guy had, this keyboard player, Robbie, had giant, just huge amount of stuff. And he had a Fender Rhodes as a, as a controller, which they had modified to do MIDI, Love it. which is an old seventies keyboard. Anyway, so I'm in there and I'm just messing around. I don't play keyboards at all to, mm-hmm. to save my life. And so I've got the, the line out. It's like, okay, everything works. And then I hear this voice come in and say, hi, are you Robbie? It's like, no, 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 I'm Collier. It's like, I turn around and it's Michael Jackson. Oh. And so it's like, oh, and th- nobody's here. The, the receptionist let me in the studio because I was early mm-hmm. for the session. So I sat and had a cup of tea with Michael Jackson and he asked me, he goes, well, what's all this? And I sort of told him and it was cool. Then all the players came in and Swedine came in, the engineer for the session. And it's like, okay, man, good to meet you. I got to go. So, yeah. but it's just like, you never know who you're going to cross paths with, um, in, especially in LA or anywhere else. And I could name drop all day, but it, but th- the cool thing is, is that they're real people. And if you treat them as such, mm-hmm. they'll tell you stuff. They'll talk to you like... Because so many people are like, oh, I don't know what I would do if I met that person. You know, oh, I, I had Barbara Streisand come in and yell at everybody in the room. And then when everybody left, she goes, oh, that's just how I control the room. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> you know, things like that. You get to see stuff that, you know, that happens in everyone's, happens in everyone's home. Sure. But when it's, 
you know, when it's uh, Joe Cocker freaking out and drinking a case of beer or whatever, you're like, ah, but, but you can't tell those story. You just have to slowly go realize, oh, this is the way it works. Okay, sure. cool. Yeah. And it, like I said before, I'm, I've been so lucky to be in these situations in these circumstances where you never know who's going to walk into the room. Mm-hmm. So, so now you're, you're kind of building and setting up studios these days for you know, high profile clients. We won't mention them by name or right, anything like right. that unless you <clears throat> want to, but ah. so you're, you're building and setting up, up these studios, but in the past you've worked in studios like Bing Crosby's studio from the forties. That's still haunted by his ghost, which again, podcast mm-hmm. for another time for sure. Yeah. We'll have to revisit that, <laughs> but it, it feels like those studios from that time would have a certain amount of uh, soul to it, almost a uh, character. How does that compare to studios now that are pristine, that, you know, kind of have every area tuned to a specific way and, and that kind of thing? How do you still make sure that there's that spirit, that soul, that, that heart behind it in studios nowadays that get built? There, there are lots of designers that they want to make it look modern, but they want it to be convertible. They want it to be bright and airy or dark and compressed or, or really dead or really live. So yeah. they make rooms almost to be convertible. You can take giant wall hangings and have a hard side for reflections and a soft side to absorb it. So I think acoustically we're in a way better place than they were back then because yeah. back then everything was just big. The smaller your room is, the more you hear the room. So if you have 20 or 30 or 40 foot ceilings and a 60 foot long room that's 40 feet wide, you can put things anywhere and you're going to be okay. You can treat the walls however you'd like. I think the vibe is a, is a magical thing. I've been in Muscle Shoals, I've been in Sun Studios, and I've been in record plants, both in both coasts and, and lots of other studios as well that have that sort of vibe and that, that will never go away. Unfortunately, Studio 55 got pushed down and is now a parking lot. Yeah. So the, the old Decca Records place that, that Bing built is literally a parking lot outside of, uh, of Paramount Studios. And that's a it, shame. It, it's, it really is. It was an amazing Art Deco building uh, with black tile on the outside and incredible wood floors and super high ceilings, just an amazing place. But, you know, progress goes on. The same is happening uh, to Music Row in Nashville as well. It's become so popular. Real estate, the real estate bubble there is is huge. Yeah. And so people are selling out because they can make so much money off the real estate. And there's some classic Curb Records, uh, lots of studios that were just uh, RCA, A and B. They, they, at the last minute, they saved those rooms. Uh, a college in Nashville said, look, we need to dedicate, call this a, a historical site, keep it from being pushed down. Just amazing studios that have that vibe and that history behind them. Um, and it's about, as, it's as much as about what was recorded there as how cool the room is to record in itself. So yeah. uh, I think it's important. I think in the modern day, they can create better acoustics. And obviously uh, w- what the equipment that goes in there, it's just, you know, flavor of the day. Um, everybody runs Pro Tools mostly, but there's lots of other DAWs as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's, it's kind of everybody's preference on whether, how much analog and how much digital gear that all makes it work. But the rooms themselves, it's all based on budget and how much space you have. Obviously, bigger space is better. Um, and where you are, are you by an airport? Are you by train tracks? Things like that as far as acoustics and silence go. But, but yeah, the vibe is, is that sort of has to be added later. You can build a killer looking sounding room, but if nothing ever happens there, then 
it's just a killer, great sounding room. Yeah, you, you almost need the room, and you need some some legends, some stories to go along with the room to kind of give it the. Yeah, yeah. If you if you can bring the magic to it, yeah, then the room will sort of add that little sheen or that little, you know, sparkly fairy dust that everybody's like, oh, this is one of those rooms, right? So it it's it, it you know it's not over, but it's just different, and the music business is different. Uh, film and television is different. It's very expensive. Everything is, you know, everything. The the accountants have to watch everything because there's so much, uh, so much negativity. There's so many things that are being stolen or released or mm-hmm. or or copied or cloned before their time. So I'm glad the film industry is is still staying strong with that. The music industry really suffered with uh, a lot of piracy and the whole MP3 thing has yeah. really really hurt it. Um, they just got to refigure out how to, how can a musician make money other than playing live again? Because everyone is so used to, I'll pay ten dollars a month to have every song ever recorded play on my phone. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I haven't even thought about exploring that that aspect of things on the in our conversation. But that really has been such a major shift, even just in my lifetime, where I, I yeah. remember I had CDs and my car got broken into and all my CDs got stolen. And then around that time, MP3s were coming out and I just never replaced any of the CDs yeah. that I had. I have a, a stack of records and I have a stack of CDs that never get played. And I have 80,000 MP3s of, of, of a giant library. And I rarely, I've, I've got more music than I'll ever be able to listen to for the rest of my life. I mean, it's right. like 300 days if I never stop playing it. Uh, so I know I'll never listen to some of it but a lot of my favorite stuff is is in there. And it's and what's interesting is, is it's very hard to find my new music. When I was a kid, it's like, dude, you had X amount of stations on the radio. That was the funnel. Yeah. Oh, there's a new Aerosmith. Oh, there's a new ZZ Top record. Go to KZEW or go to Q102. That's where you're going to find it eventually. Now, there's so many outlets of music, it's tough to find it. And uh, Apple Music is is changing its, its paradigm too as well. Yeah, and one of the things I've noticed in just – you know, from from what you said uh, before, just that you would put on your headphones and you wouldn't take them off until you'd reach the second, you know, the, the end of the yeah. second side of the, of the record. These days, people don't listen to music that way quite as much anymore. It's more about the one song, the two songs, the singles that you get, you put them in a playlist or they get played on the radio and nobody really listens to the full record anymore. And I think that that's, I almost think that's a shame that we're almost losing the record and the form that it's been in for so long. Yeah, I, I think... If if pop radio was still the only way to do to to get new music, I think pop tunes would be like a minute thirty. Yeah, I think because radio was like uh, anything over three thirty is too long, except for Freebird and you know Pink Floyd. <laughs> but um, the the old there there was a sort of formula, gray ghosty formula of you need to get to the chorus within the first minute of the song. Mm-hmm. You need to get to the hook within. 30 seconds at the minimum and a maximum of a minute. If you don't get to the course of the hook of your song within the first minute, people aren't going to listen to it. And that, and that was sort of a rule when I was making, when I was working on lots of records. Like, yep. man, we, we need to edit it down. Your album cut can be whatever it wants to be. Um, so now it's like, you know, kids will listen to the first minute of a song. They'll hear the hook next. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, no one listens to. And that's why I think, to jump around a little bit, that's why I think the, the resurgence of the vinyl album is is it's not really making a comeback, but it's like back. It's back to a certain extent because a lot of people grew up. A lot of people my age only listen to albums and cassettes. It's man, you put on headphones, listen to side A, get a drink, listen to side B. Wow, repeat. Now 
I mean, you can you can reshuffle things. You can listen to singles. You can only you know. There's th- that experience of holding a, a, a record album in my hands or the liner notes and reading the notes about Little Feet while I'm listening to their live double albums. Like, oh, this is so cool. Right. And that experience is gone. I think there are a lot of kids whose parents uh, listen to albums when they were kids mm-hmm. are are re experiencing that they're the people that are buying vinyl, which I think is awesome. Yeah. I don't think it's a better sound than a great 96K mastered whatever, but I think the experience of listening to something on vinyl, reading the liner notes, and having that focused experience, a lot of people don't understand because they're they're so busy on their scooter with their earbuds or in their <laughs> car driving. Right, Or sure, sure. they're multitasking constantly, reading and listening it's it's really tough to focus, but if you can put on your headphones, close your eyes, or just you know listen to it to as deeply as you can to the music, that's the experience I think that they're getting. Because there's there's a journey that you go on when listening to an album of exploration of whatever topics it is that the the artist wanted to take you through. And exactly. There's a way that you move through an album that I think that there is something to that, and rediscovering that's a good thing for whoever it is that is in fact kind of going that route these days. It's a good thing for music and anybody that really appreciates it. Absolutely. That's I think having music in schools. No, not everybody's going to come out of it and play in a symphony or play in a rock band. Sure. It, it, that's not what that's for. It's about education. It's about it, being able to appreciate music. You know, I, I laugh at p- kids like, oh, I take uh, appreciation of art. It's like, what do you mean appreciation of art? But if you think about it, it's like, I see art, I go to a good gallery and look at things and go, that does nothing for me. That does, th- oh, look at that. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why. And I don't really care why. I know that it moves me. Same as music. And when when album mastering was a thing, there's also album sequencing. It's what order does all the songs yes. in. If they're unrelated pop tunes, then you build a then you sort of build a sequence of how you want the flow to go. If it's a concept album, you already know what that is and it's mm-hmm. it's it's already been planned out. And I think listening to an album is an amazing way to sort of de-stress, take yourself completely away over everything. Um, for 45 minutes or an hour or whatever the, the album is or CD. We focused a lot on just the music side of, of things, of audio, but um, one of the things we were talking about before we started recording was just the amazing amount of sound design that happens in movies these days and even podcasts and just the way that audio is being used in unique and different ways these days has just been, uh, it's kind of just been exploding. It, it it's, it's sort of that missing element. You can't see audio. Mm-hmm. You see what's on the picture. It's easy for people or accountants or anybody that's spending money to go, oh, look what's on the screen. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what we were looking for right there. But if the sound isn't good, it the experience isn't the same. And it's sort of one of the, the jokes that I like to say is like, well, you know, good picture with no audio. Well, that's just surveillance. <laughs> but but a great picture a, a great picture with great audio is a, is a is a visceral experience. It's you, immersive. Yeah, oh absolutely. And yeah. and that's the way sound is becoming. I mean, this the whole new Dolby Atmos thing. Mm-hmm. It's 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 immersive sound. It's all around you, it's behind you, it's in front of you, it's next to you, it's above you, both front and rear and left and right, and subwoofers that go down to thirteen cycles that make you feel like you're having an earthquake. Um it's it's this sense it's this sensual experience of all your senses visual hearing and your body moves i mean it's, it's you know good good audio can make you have chills and make you cry can make you laugh without anything and there's the 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 
the sort of hectic part of it is you watch certain action films, a lot of these DC and Marvel comic films, and there isn't a moment when there isn't sound design or sound effects going on, even during dialogue, because they can. And with digital technology and with the DAWs that we use now, you can have 4,500 tracks going to the final mix. 4,500. How does two guys wrangle that? Very carefully. But, <laughs> but because, because you can, they will. Right. It's like with, with uh, early records, it's like, well, we got 24 tracks. One track is for time code. One is the guard track, which can be like the shaker or something. So we got 23 tracks. Then we could link two machines together. Ooh, we got 44 tracks. Oh, okay. Now we got a Sony half-inch digital 48 track machine. Oh, wait, we can link two of those and have 96 tracks. So now we're, you know, Pro Tools, for instance, can do normally 384 tracks. But you could bump it up and do 1,000 tracks if you want to. Right. So if you link six machines together... I'll let you do the math. Uh, it's 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 not that we can. It's because we want we want options, mm -hmm. and it's it's sort of the same thing with digital technology. Like I said, with tape, you had twenty three channels, twenty two channels. You committed. That's the drum sound. Those are the drums. We can't go back and fix it. We're keeping that. Okay, everybody agree. Yes. Now you could have a thousand tracks of audio for a song, and at the very end of the process, okay, we're almost we're almost done mixing. Oh man. Can we change the kick drum? Yeah, why not? So with di digital technology, you can push off all those final commitment decisions literally to the very end. Right. And so that actually, instead of digital being a faster way of work, it tends to stretch it out, make it longer because you don't have to commit to certain decisions. And there's a certain beauty with that analog workflow. Where it's like, okay, here's our basic tracks, not changing it. Yeah. We'll create a, a slave and have 23 more tracks so we can do all the background vocals. We can play with that for as long as our budget lasts. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but in the end, those, those original rhythm section tracks are still the same. You can EQ them and compress them. Maybe you can trigger a new snare drum, but it's, the basic performance is not going to change. Nowadays, you could start with one track, build 500 tracks on top of it, and at the very end of the day go, oh, I'm going to change that original track because we can. Mm -hmm. So it's options. And, and when you start limiting yourself a lot of great records were made on 16 track machines the eurythmic uh the first eurythmics record was done on a, a half inch eight track and it's an unbelievable sounding record even today so those limits uh tend to force you to make decisions that are very important yeah and can make make your record very much more interesting or your movie for that matter but sure nowadays i mean the, the people that are mixing films some of the guys that i've i've met and worked with um, are just brilliant and they know, they feel it. They know what works and know what doesn't. Mm -hmm. So they literally have guys on the side, sound designers like, no, wrong door slam, wrong gunshot, probe another one. They'll go, okay, that one's great and move on. So it leaves them, they want to have choices and, and I understand it, but it does make the process um, longer, more tedious. But at the end of the day, if you come out with a better product that makes money or sells and is the most popular movie or song of the week or year or whatever, hey, that's, that's a win. Well, it's incredible kind of tracing the progress of these these products of technology kind of through your career. And, and that's really an incredible thing to get to witness and get to talk about. And I could sit in here and do it for a, a, couple, <laughs> a, a few more hours, but exactly, we're out of time for today. So, Collier, thank you so much for coming in and, and chatting about this. And I, I would really love to do it again soon. M my pleasure, Tyler. I appreciate it.